So today we're going to be continuing our, our, our new series on the greatest sermon ever preached. I get to talk about the greatest sermon. This won't be the greatest sermon you've ever heard. Probably not. You've probably heard better. But we know that Jesus preached the greatest sermon, so I'm safe to, to talk about his sermon. So uh, we're, we're going to look at, uh, in a greater way, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5 through 7. We're going to be just over the next bit of time. I'm not quite sure how long I'm going to be in this, but uh, so far we're into the first few verses, and it's been like three weeks, so it might be a while. So um, I'm excited. I love this sermon. I love what Jesus teaches us. I love what he speaks to us. It is the only full-length sermon that we have recorded in Scripture by Jesus. And uh, so we've heard it, but again, as I pray, let's hear it in a new and fresh way today and over these next few weeks. I encourage you to, again, read it on your own time. Study it. Ask the Lord what he's saying to you through it. Um, and, and just receive from him, receive from his spirit, receive from, from his word, apply it to your life. And um, it is rich. And uh, I encourage you again, um, even though you may have read it, ask the Lord to give you just kind of, you know, a new way to see it and a uh, fresh way to see it and more revelation of him. Um, it's interesting just kind of, uh, again, as a setup, I'm not going to set it up every week, but we're just a few weeks in. I want to do it again today. But Jesus is teaching his disciples and us, and there was a crowd of people that gathered around, and uh, and 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 there was a. It started out with his disciples. Then we have a crowd pressing in. By the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we have a lot of people listening to what Jesus is saying. They were amazed at his. Um, at his teaching, it says at the end of Matthew 7 that they were amazed because he taught as one who had authority, unlike the teachers of religious law. Is this still ringing? Can you guys hear ringing? Or is that just me? Because it's ringing kind of in my ear. I'm not quite sure. What, uh, thanks, Jeff. Our guys are working hard back there. And so he's teaching on the kingdom of God, ushering in a new kingdom, a new way of looking at things, a new system, an eternal kingdom that is not of this world. And so throughout the sermon, he gives us keys and revelations of being a part of that kingdom. Let me, let me sidebar here and, and, and just say we are all called as believers in Jesus, we are called to be kingdom builders until we die or he returns. Amen? We are called to be in a, a part and be in the kingdom of God. We, we, when, we, when we accept Christ, I think that there's a level of excitement. And I think as, as, as we are Christians longer and longer, it's very easy just to kind of maybe we kind of fade out and fade into the sunset. God did not call us to fade away. He called us to be a part of his kingdom until he returns or until he calls us home. And all through the sermon, the greatest revelation that we get is Jesus himself. When he describes these principles, the kingdom principles, he's describing himself. What do we get through the sermon? We get more of Jesus. And we come away with, be, with him. And that's, that's the goal, or it should be the goal of every, every believer is to become more and more Christ-like, more and more like him. And that's where his Holy Spirit comes to us and empowers us to be more like Jesus. So we find him, we find uh, his heart, his life. And so starting last week, we, we looked at the first part of the sermon, and uh, we're going to be in the Beatitudes here for the next couple of weeks also, but we're going to look at these, these Beatitudes. That's why I've, I've, I've defined this sermon or titled it, The Pursuit of Happiness. Last week is The Pursuit of Happiness, because we're going to look at it, what it really means, the deeper meaning of blessed are, and uh, we can go to the next slide, because 
the word rooted means happy, but it's not just talking about just a temporary uh, happiness of I've got vacation in a couple of weeks and I'm really happy about that. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I love vacation as much as anyone. But, you know, when you get back from vacation, it's, you, can, you can't live on vacation. That's kind of a temporary happiness. And so when you hear the word blessed, when Jesus is saying blessed are, he's talking about an attitude of happiness that's rooted in this, a meaning of blessed, eternally happy, spiritually prosperous, with life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, regardless of outward conditions. I gave that definition last week, and, and that is what he means when he says, when he brings the disciples and he begins to teach them in this sermon, he goes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn. Happy are those, not just happy, but eternally happy, spiritually prosperous, satisfaction, God's favor. It's all the things that we want as believers, that we want spiritual prosperity. We want God's favor. We want to be eternally happy and satisfied in Him. But it's, it, it's, it's regardless of outward conditions. So he's talking about an eternal, a, a deep happiness and contentment that we find in, his, in what he's trying to teach us here. So it's really important that we understand that definition and, and what Jesus is really getting at. And as I said last week, everyone wants to be happy. Most people are trying to pursue happiness. I talked about even that we have a right in our country. It's a part of our declaration, the right to pursue happiness. And so we, we, we pursue it. And the problem is, is there's a lot of unhappy people in our world because they're looking for happiness in all the wrong places. They're looking for happiness in temporary things. And they'll never find it in those things because those things end up running out. And we find true happiness, again, more than just in his teachings, but we find it in Christ himself. So Jesus, in his sermon, he reveals to us how to be truly happy, eternally happy, spiritually prosperous, life joy, satisfaction, God's favor and salvation, regardless of outward conditions. That's a promise that I want and I hope that you want too. But you notice what it says at the bottom there. And that's the key point because that goes against the way the world thinks. It goes against what the world is striving for in happiness. I'm always amazed at sports teams when they win a championship. I'm sorry that Minnesota has that. The, the ladies' NBA team won. Didn't they, didn't they win a, national, a world championship? So we got something to hang on to, you know, so... But it's amazing to me, you know, all of the buildup of, of the Super Bowl and, you know, in the Olympics. And we have, you know, some of those memories if you like sports and, and you know, these huge competitions, uh, competitions. Then they win. And then it's like, you know, a couple of months after they win, it's like, okay, now we're not the champions anymore and you got to do this again next year. And people, there's this happiness that people have. And, and it's so funny how temporary it really is. Or if you're like me, that you live in the Super Bowl that your team won back in the 1990s. Because that's the last time that I have anything to look forward to. You know, it's like, and it's funny because some of my friends know this, but I have a, I have a videotape of the Washington Redskins Super Bowl game in 1987. Is that Devin laughing at me? He knows about that story. And every once in a while, I just pop it in because I want to see what it's like to win a Super Bowl again. breaks my heart, you know, just temporary happiness, though. Who cares, right? Obviously, I do probably more than I need to. 
but it's funny how temporary it is. And Jesus is talking about going against the world's way of viewing happiness and contentment. And so how do we get it? He offers it. How do we get it? What should our attitude be? And that's interesting, the Beatitudes. He's saying this should be your attitudes. Last week, we looked at the first two from Matthew 5, 3, and 4. You know, Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. There is a profound reason why these were listed as the first two that Jesus gave as the first attitudes that we should have for happiness, for true happiness. It's interesting because he, he's about to start the sermon, and the, right out of the gate, the first two words, the first two phrases out of his mouth are these two, but I think are so important. I would just want to re- repeat them again from Matthew 5, 3, and 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so he's ushering in this new kingdom. He's offering us the kingdom. He's saying, do you want the kingdom? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. If you want to get the kingdom, you need to be poor in spirit. What does he mean by poor in spirit? It is the realization that we are completely and totally dependent on God. That without him, we are nothing. Without him, we can do nothing. This is the basis, really, for salvation. When you hear the word about you know, being born again or saved, it's just coming to that realization that I'm completely dependent on Jesus. That without him, I'm spiritually and morally bankrupt. I can't do it myself. I can't have enough good works. I am totally dependent. So I am myself. I'm poor in spirit. And Jesus says, if you get that revelation, you are happy. You are spiritually prosperous more than you realize because you realize your need for him. And then the second one, he goes right into it, and, it, and, and, and a lot of these tie together, but blessed are they that mourn, for they will be comforted. And this is an attitude of repentance. So when we realize our deep need of him, it should, it should drive us to the cross because the cross was the ultimate payment for our sins. That when Jesus died in those profound words that he spoke from the cross, it is finished means paid in full. That he completed the work for us. And an attitude of repentance means that we should be mournful. That's a blessed are they that mourn. They will be comforted. See, a lot of times we mourn, but then we find comfort in the wrong things. But we need to be mournful of our sins. And, but the response needs to be we need to run to him. The cross should give us two responses. The cross should say, you know, oh my goodness, I couldn't do that. I, I mean, I, look at the payment he paid for me. I don't have to go to the cross. He already went to the cross. I don't have to die for my sins. I deserve it, but he did it for me. And it should not make you come to a place of condemnation, but true life-giving conviction of the Holy Spirit to say, thank you for the cross. Lord, I mourn over my sin of what it did to you. And I need your forgiveness because when we truly repent, it brings a cleansing. There's a cleansing that, I mean, it is a beautiful, wonderful feeling. And when he disciplines us, and I talked about this in Hebrews 12, it is not enjoyable at the time. But I tell you, when you make things right with God, there is a cleansing that happens in your inner man that is just wonderful. And then he says, I will comfort you. Blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. Not just a general comfort. You're going to be comforted by God himself. The presence of the Holy Spirit comes and comforts us. And it's a cleansing instead of a condemnation. So it it is not by accident that Jesus comes right out of the gate. And the first couple of phrases 
are poor in spirit, realizing your need for God and an attitude of repentance. And so today's text, it, it leads us into the next thoughts that he has from Matthew 5, 5 and 6. It says this, blessed, again, eternally happy, spiritually prosperous outside of outward conditions. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the meek. You know, meekness has gotten a bad reputation in society. And I want to talk about what meekness is not. Then I'm going to talk about, you know, some attributes to, to, to meekness. The word meek is not weak. It is not wimpy. It is not overly passive. It's not being a pushover. It is not being a doormat or cowardly. But that is kind of the synonyms that meek has gotten in our, in our culture, in our, in our lives. A lot of people hear meek and they think of some guy hanging out in the corner that's just kind of afraid to look at everybody and, and he's kind of a, a wimp and he doesn't really have an opinion. That's not what it means. It's a wrong definition. Again, let us be reminded that the, that the attributes that Jesus are, are giving is a revelation of himself. He himself was the very picture of meekness and what it means to be meek. He wasn't weak at all. He wasn't a wimp. You know, that's a, I, I know that artists back a long time ago had these renditions of Jesus, but I'm always offended at those pictures. You know, that he's just almost barely standing up. He's British. He's got blue eyes. I mean, I, I just, it just kills me, you know, and it's just like he's just... Weak, you know, and he just, oh, you know, he's like about to fall over or something. I think Jesus was very strong. You can call him weak if you want to. He was not weak. But he did operate in a different spirit because, again, he was ushering in a new system, a new kingdom, not of this world. And we also are called to usher this kingdom into the world, in us and through us. The kingdom of God is in us. The kingdom of God is, is here among us. And we are called with Christ to usher it in. So how do we do it? So before we look at what it means to be meek, let's look at the promise of those who are meek. Because you get the promise at the end of that passage. Blessed are the meek, for they will what? Inherit the earth. And you're thinking, you know, it's kind of an interesting thought process there because our eternal inheritance is not the earth. It will be the new earth, but, you know, it's an eternal kingdom. The, the, the kingdom of God is our reward. But what is Jesus talking about? You will inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. This speaks of influence. That we as believers, followers of Christ, we were created to have an influence in our society. Did Jesus have an influence when he was on the earth? You know, he, contr he controlled the spiritual atmosphere wherever he went. That's why he could go into places where, you know, there was, there, there was partying. I mean, the, 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 the religious were offended that he went to Matthew's party where there was, there was drinking and there was different things. And they were like, you know, why does your teacher hang out with all these scummy people? And Jesus was right in the middle of them. But he was not influenced by them. He was the influencer. 
But to inherit the earth, it speaks of influence as we're on the earth, the kingdom influence on the earth, making an impact. We were created to make an impact. So later on, we'll talk about when Jesus says, let your light shine before men. Be the salt of the earth. Be the, the light of the world. We were called to make an impact in our society, in our world. We were called to make a difference. So that's what it talks about, influence, impact, and making a difference to inherit the earth. It also speaks of ruling and reigning with Christ in his kingdom and walking in his authority. I mean, that's what it's talking about, influence, that the meek will inherit the earth, walking in his authority, walking as his children, walking as rulers and reigners of Christ. That is who we are. But let me, let me, let me clarify, because it's how we do it. It's how we make an impact. It's how we have influence. It's how we walk in His authority. Because we do it in a different spirit than the world. That's what Jesus models for us. That's what Jesus is teaching us, is that we do it differently than the world. The world's way of influence or making an impact or making a difference or, or ruling and reigning and having authority is aggressive. Not to say that we're not to be aggressive sometimes, but it's in how we do it. It's in the right spirit. But self-promotion, me-centered, do whatever it takes to put yourself in a position of benefit. That's the world's way of making an impact and kind of climbing that ladder, if you will. It's to push people beneath you. And in some ways, this has crept into the church. It's easy for any of us to operate in that, to make it self-promotion, me-centered. But that is not what meek is. Jesus did it differently, and he's calling us to do it differently. You know, again, to go back to the Philippians 2 passage where he says, you know, have the same attitude. Paul says, have the same attitude as Christ had. Though he was equal to God, he did not, you know, he did not claim his equality with God, you know, something to be, you know, to be promoted. But he took on the form of a servant as a slave. And he came as a servant. That's the way he did it. And that's where you're going to see him model it. That's the way he's telling us to do it. But if we want to make the greatest impact, if we want to have the greatest influence, we need to do it his way. So what does meek mean? Let me give you a few things here of what meekness means, and then we'll talk of some attributes of meekness from the Word of God. Meekness really means strength under control. Or power under control. And actually, the word meek has some historical ties. It, in the picture, if you will, is basically a war horse that is under the command of their master as they go into battle. These war horses had incredible power, but they were also under control. Because what they did not want to do, and they would train these horses to ride into combat zones that were, I mean, you know, you've got all kinds of battle going on. And they had to go in, and they had to be strong, and they had to be courageous. But if you had one that freaked out under pressure, then their strength was going to just begin to abuse. And, and it, would, it would hurt the rider. It would hurt people around. It would hurt your allies. And so they were trained to be able to ride into very dangerous situations and keep their composure 
So there was a lot of power. There was a lot of strength, yet it was under control of the master who was riding the horse. Meekness. That we go into, we are in a world at war. There's spiritual war all around us. We're in a battle. Paul describes it as a battle. And so we need to be, and we, we do have power. We do have influence. If you don't think that, just look at James chapter 3 where it talks about the power of our tongue, that we have death and life in our tongue. You can speak life and you can speak death with your tongue. We do have a lot of power. But is that power under the control of the master who is in us? Can we go into these situations where the warfare is great and be under his control and his influence? Strength and power under control. It's also courage and boldness with humility. Meekness and great humility are interchangeable, you know, in definition. But it's having courage and boldness with humility. Because just having courage and boldness and going in your own self-strength and your own self-promotion, you can cause a lot of damage. But it's it is courage and boldness with humility. It is passion without pride. We're called to be passionate people, but without pride. It's desiring to be seen of God rather than man. And you're going to hear Jesus in the sermon about how we pray and how we do things to be seen of God rather than man. Meekness is also tied to living for inward transformation rather than outward manifestation. That's why Jesus challenged the religious of their outward conformity, yet they had no inward transformation. They were very bold and very, you know, brash outwardly, but inside they were very far away from God. And so it's living for outward or inward transformation rather than outward manifestation. One way is to say quiet confidence. And so let's look at some attributes of the meek. Ultimately, again, when I give you these attributes, I want to say a couple of things. Attributes of the meek, you're going to see Jesus in these. Because that is the goal, is to become like him. The ultimate goal for us as believers is to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And so that's the first thing. That's the goal, is to be Christ-like. Number two, I hope this completely like it does me overwhelms you. That it drives you into an intimate relationship with Jesus. Because if you want to be like him, you must be with him. We, We need him daily. That's why this sermon is intended to be somewhat overwhelming of how do we live that way. You look at Scripture, you look at the challenge of Scripture, and, and you know, you can say, well, is it just kind of suggestions for life? Is it, a, is it a book of morals? Absolutely not. It's keys to the kingdom. It's keys to authority. It's keys to influence and impact. But we should be overwhelmed because we need Jesus to live like that. That's why Paul, you know, the, the, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, love is this, love is this, and he lists the, and you can... You know, just feel more and more overwhelmed. Love is this. Well, I'm not doing that. You know, I'm not doing that. Okay, I'm not doing that. And then you get to the end and go, basically, I'm not loving very well. And what Paul is saying is, 
you need to understand that this cannot be separated with the thought that you need Jesus to love that way. And it should drive us to greater intimacy with him because that's what we're created for is relationship. And so I hope it does overwhelm us to the point where we get up tomorrow and say, Jesus, I desperately need you, goes back to poor in spirit of I am completely independent, uh, completely dependent on him. I desperately need him. So here's some attributes of, of the meek. A meek person is controlled, gentle, and forgiving. Controlled, gentle, and forgiving. And so kind of underneath that is it's having a strong spirit, yet a teachable spirit. It's what it means of being under authority. Jesus modeled this. Jesus, did Jesus have authority? He said, I have all authority. He even, you know, the time where you have that demoniac of the Gerasenes, Jesus gets out of the boat, and this demoniac, who no one, no one else knew what to do with this guy. He was in a, he lived in a graveyard. He was filled with demonic spirits. He was bound. He had all kinds of issues. They tried to chain him. He broke the chains, and it says that he lived among the graveyard. I mean, this guy was in a dark, dark place because of the influence of demonic activity in his life. Jesus pulls up, gets out immediately. The, this guy runs to Jesus, falls down in the demonic spirit, says, please don't torment us. Jesus, son of the most high God. I mean, they're, they see, in the spirit realm, they saw his authority. Jesus had all authority. Yet we see him modeling this idea of having a strong yet teachable spirit. Jesus was under the authority of his father. He modeled that for us. He said, I only speak what I hear the father speaking. Well, why didn't Jesus say, well, I already know what I'm supposed to speak because I have all authority. He subjected himself to the authority of the father. He said, I do what I see the father doing. I speak only what I hear the father speaking. You have the Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit have authority? Absolutely. But this says this, Jesus said this about the Holy Spirit. He doesn't speak on his own behalf. He's not independent of the authority of the Father. He does what the Father is doing, and he speaks what the Father is speaking. So you have Christ himself who had all authority, yet was under the authority of the Father. And so meekness, and Jesus modeled it, is having a strong yet teachable spirit being under authority. Number two, it's someone with full ability to conquer, but yet they're able to practice discipline and control within the power. Paul says, he calls us that, it says that the, one of the promises that we have in God is that we're more than conquerors. But again, under that meekness, it's someone who has the ability to conquer, yet they practice discipline and control within that power. It's being under God's control. At all times. Next, it is someone who is gentle and remains under control, especially when dealing with different types of people and circumstances. It can make us groan a little bit when we hear that stuff, huh? Someone who is gentle remains under control, especially when dealing with different types of people and circumstances. 
You ever come across those times in your life where you have a circumstance, you have a person that just, oh my goodness, I do not know what to do with this person. Or I'm in a circumstance, I don't know what to do with this circumstance. It's remaining remaining calm and remaining at peace. Remaining gentle under those times. Again, not that we're not, we're always affected by those things. We're affected by different people. We're affected by different circumstances. But it is remaining under control and under God's control in dealing with those. Next, meekness. Someone who is even-tempered, who can answer respectfully, and who's able to show displeasure without reacting impulsively. Did you catch that? Even-tempered, who can answer respectfully, and who's able to show displeasure without reacting impulsively. And that's why Jesus, even in his meekness, there were times where he, he had some hard words for his disciples. He had very hard words towards the religious. You know, the religious, it was just they were operating in a completely wrong spirit, and he called them out on it. The disciples, you see him kind of becoming more of a, he's coaching them along, but he's, he speaks hard words to them. And you see him coaching them along because he wanted the best for them. When you would hear him say, you know, you, you faithless generation, how long do I have to put up with you? You know, that, that's not the, the lowly picture that we have of Jesus standing in the corner and can barely hold himself up. No, he was very powerful. And he would rebuke his disciples because what he was trying to do is draw out of them the absolute best. And he wanted the best for them. But he kept an even temper. And he could, he could show displeasure without reacting impulsively. He would see deeper and he didn't fly off the handle. Paul to Timothy, and and I think it's 2 Timothy, he says, gently correct those who oppose you or oppose the truth. And we can do it in a gentle way. Number five is this, is someone who can respectfully disagree. They're not easily provoked. They don't seek revenge. And they're usually very willing to forgive others. Ouch. Respectfully disagree, not easily provoked. Doesn't that sound like the love chapter too? Love is not easily provoked. It does not seek revenge. And it's eager and willing to forgive others. That's meekness. Instead of holding on to the grudge when somebody wrongs us. Because, you know, sometimes people will wrong you and they're intentional and they wrong you. Sometimes people, they don't really mean to wrong you and they wrong you. Regardless of either, we have to walk in a spirit of forgiveness and meekness and the the spirit of Christ, the meek spirit of Christ comes in us. And that's where it really reveals before that we mourn by our own sins, that we remember what we've been forgiven for and we should offer forgiveness freely. Say, Jesus, help me to forgive them. Help me to let that go, to keep no record of the wrong. That's hard for us as humans. We, We keep a list. If not real list, we keep a mental list, and it's hard to forgive. 
Number six, it's someone who fully realizes and understands the effects of sin. And because of it, they're committed to spiritual discipline. Again, you'll hear the tie back to those first couple. That's why it should be, for a meek person, it should be kind of a part of who we are is to forgive. And you'll see later on in the sermon where Jesus says, you know, whatever measuring stick you use to measure other people, that's what he measures us with. Going back a few years ago, I was in prayer one time, and, uh, and, and this passage came to me, and I, I can't really remember the event, but uh, I was kind of having a hard time with something that someone had done. And, and, and you know, you ever pray self-righteous prayers like me sometimes? And you think it's real holy, and then the Lord is, you, you can just almost sense that conviction that is like, what are you doing? And you pray with a thought mindset of, uh, Lord, I sure hope you show them what they did wrong. For their own freedom, Lord. Break the chains off of them, Lord. Help them to see how bad they really are. You know, I mean, we, we, we sometimes pray that way. Maybe not those words, but we want them to see it. And that was having one of those times. And I got this picture, you know, and I don't get these things often, but it was kind of a picture of, and it was me holding this measuring tape, and I was, and I had it barely out, and I was just measuring them within, you know, just that real precise, you know, just very little grace. And it was like the hands of the Lord were behind me with the measuring tape with the same amount over me. And then the picture is like this, and then I gave a little more grace, and then he gave a little more grace. All of a sudden, you want to just take that and just get all the tape out of there, you know, and give them as much grace as possible because you remember for what you have been forgiven for. It should bring us and humble ourselves to be committed to spiritual discipline and say, Lord, I want to forgive. The effects of sin, I, I, I need you every day, Jesus. A meek person's humble and at peace. And there's peace, again, that is not based on our circumstances. It's someone who knows their place in God's plan, who strives to bloom where they're planted, and who realizes the grass isn't always greener on the other side of the fence. If you change my circumstances, if you change my job, my locality, change this and change that, um, I've been there. God, get me out of here. God, get me out of this mess. And the Lord says, I'm speaking to you right in the middle of the mess, and you need to learn what I'm teaching you in the middle of the mess. And then you can rest. It's hard. It makes you, reminds me of Psalm 23. It says he makes us to lie down in green pastures. There's a reason why he says that. He makes us. Because we don't generally do that, especially when our circumstances are not good. We know our place in God's plan. That even when we're going through difficulty, we are in the, the, the hands of God. You've heard me talk about Joseph a lot where he had the promise and he was going through quite a lot. But you know what? The Lord was with him even when he was in the prison, even when he got falsely accused, even when all these negative things happened to him. He saw the greater plan. God, I don't know what you're doing, but I know I'm in your hands. And I know my place in your, my, my life and my place in your plan. Help me to realize, God, that just escaping from my circumstances is not the answer. Help me to learn what you're doing in the midst of this. A meek person is not jealous 
They're content with what God gives. Do you ever compare yourself to others? Man, they seem so blessed. They seem like they just, man, they just do, do whatever, and God's just blessing them left and right. I just don't get it. I don't understand it. That is a way that you're going down a slippery slope. God wants us to keep our eyes on him and be content with what he gives and in the place and the season that we're in. Their identity is in Christ and not a position. It's just being at rest. Philippians 4, Paul says this, and he, he wrote this book of Philippians. And I love that it's called the book of joy, and he writes it from a prison, a, a, just a dungeon. And he's writing about joy. And in Philippians 4, he writes about, he said, I've learned to be content, that word rest, peace. He said, whether I have a full belly or an empty belly, whether, whether I have much or have little, because he really went to those extremes. You know, when he was a Pharisee, I mean, he was, he was a, in a higher echelon of the Pharisee, so he had a lot. And then he knew what it was like to have everything stripped away. He knew what it was like to be around people that loved him, and he had those times, those sweet moments. Then he had, he knew, he had those moments where he was turned on by people that he thought were close to him. But he said, you know what, in all of this stuff, I didn't, my, my emotions didn't swing back and forth. My, my rest and peace weren't just in when it was happening. I've learned to be content in all things because I'm, my contentment is not in circumstances. In the, it's in the man Christ Jesus. That's where my contentment lies. It's not in a position. One of the greatest things that we can do, like especially in a position or a place in, in Christ, is that we have that, and I think Steve said this the last time he preached, is we can give it or take it. Because, Lord, I'm in your hands. I can give it or take it. Because ultimately it's saying is God is in control, not man. He does use people in our lives. But we could give it or take it. There's a, there's a rest. And you see Jesus in that, in his meekness, just walking around being who God created him to be, who, who, who the Father called him to be. A meek person desperately knows their need for God and his hand alone to guide, direct, and control their life. We've already talked a little bit about that. The next one is a meek person is well aware of their shortcomings and they will freely admit that they don't have all the answers. There's a power in that of saying, I don't know. I have a hard time with that, especially as a pastor. You want to know? When somebody goes, I need some advice, and, and then you're racking your brain with everything, and you just have no good advice for them, but you're trying to come up with something. You know, um, twirl around, don't jump up in the air, and put your finger to your nose. I don't know. I mean, you know, and, and then you tell them I don't know. And then there's sometimes people almost, they, they, they look relieved like, you. oh, yeah, you're human. That's right. You may not have all the answers. Some people, their, their shoulders go, and you just feel the disappointment. And then you usually make up something then. Well, do this. I don't know. Because ultimately, Jesus wants to be our satisfaction. He wants to be our answer. So sometimes the greatest things we can say is to say, I don't know, but Jesus does. Romans 12, 3 says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. 
So a meek person thinks with a sober judgment. They're humble before God and man. Next is they are proactive instead of reactive. They don't make rash decisions based on emotions such as fear, anger, or lust. You know, we deal with fear a lot. And there's sometimes where we make those rash decisions based on fear. You know, where I've got to have this, uh, something's wrong, something's going to go wrong, and I have to make this decision now. And we make these rash decisions based, based on fear that it just, it's not good. Or anger. Have you ever made a rash decision out of anger, a, a, a rash vow that comes out of, well, I will never, or I will always, you will never, and we make a rash decision out of anger. We've got to learn how to take that step back because we need Christ, the meek, gentle Savior, to be in us. Or those lustful things that we would do in a moment of lust and we make a decision. But a, a meek person is proactive, that we're staying close to the Lord. We're walking with the Lord. And Jesus modeled it in the boat when he was, when the storm was raging all around and he's asleep in the bottom of the boat. I just, I love that picture of Jesus. Here's what Jesus' fear of the storm was. I think I'll take a nap. That's rest. And they're, you know, the disciples, what are you doing? We're going to drown, you know, and, and they're, they're, they're just fearful. And he's like, oh, and he rebukes the wind and the waves and tells them, why do you have such little faith? And there's one of those rebuking words, those coaching words to the disciples. Asleep in the boat, asleep in those times. And so meekness is an attitude in which we will make great impact and we will have great influence. We will inherit the earth. Jesus modeled it. This is how he walked in great authority. Listen to Matthew 11. And we know this, 28, 29, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And as we go in the sermon that we're learning from him, he said, for I am gentle or meek, and I'm humble at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. There's nothing like God's rest and his peace. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Meekness is him. You want to learn how to be more meek? Be with him more. Learn from him. It's how he ruled. And then he says it in, before he dies, Luke 22, and you don't have to turn there, but Luke 22, 24 through 27, the disciples are arguing about greatness, and he's talking about going to the cross. And he gives them this illustration. He says, you know, the, the rulers in this world, they lord it over their subjects. It should not be with you. You should take on the form of a servant or a slave. He said, because the Son of Man, talking of himself, I came to serve, not to be served. And he even says, says this, I am among you as one who serves. You want to make great impact. You want to have great influence. You want to rule and reign in my kingdom and have great authority. Start washing people's feet. Start doing servant things. Take the lowest seat in the house. That's why it was so different the way he ruled and reigned. We don't do that in our society. We, we are so easily swayed into, you know, naming this and claiming that, and, 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 and we don't have to do that. We just need to rest in who he is, and that's how we walk in great authority. Joyce Meyer shared this in a, one of her messages uh, where she spoke. She said, you know, I used to, I used to yell and scream at demons. 
So I don't do that anymore. Never saw Jesus doing it. He just walked in. He was who he was, and they were subject to him. She said, I let my peace, I let my rest in God control the atmosphere. Because they have to bow their knee to Jesus. And if he's in me, they will bow their knee to him. I know I spent a lot of time on meekness, and I want to touch in on those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I'm going to go very quickly on this one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It's an attitude of being spiritually hungry and thirsty. What does it mean? It's tied to number one, the poor in spirit, realizing our complete dependency on God. It's hungering and thirsting for righteousness in the humble realization that without him, I'm spiritually starving and I'm dying of thirst. He wants us to be in a place where we're so walking with him in relationship that it feels like we have skipped meals when we haven't been with him. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we are hungering and thirsting for him. One of his names from the Old Testament is Jehovah Sidkenu, which means the Lord our righteousness. And so when we're spiritually hungry and thirsty, we're hungry for him. We need him like we need daily physical food and water. And he doesn't want us to be satisfied with other things. He wants us to, be, to put him first place in our lives. Imagine eating a meal and drinking a glass of water once a week. You would not, there would not be much of you left. That's what Jesus is driving at here is, I want you to be so spiritually hungry and thirsty for me. Because then the promise that he says is then you will be filled. You keep coming to him, you run to him, you get in his word, you get in his presence, he will fill you. And he says, and we'll get into this at a different time in the sermon, but Matthew 6, he says, seek first the kingdom of God. Again, he's revealing a different kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. So he's not talking about that you shouldn't enjoy life or enjoy things of life. He's not saying that. But he's saying have divine priorities. Me first. I want to be your sustenance. I want to be your food. I want to be your drink. And when you're seeking that, when you're spiritually hungry and thirsty, then all the other things that he will give to you, because you know what? You'll be so aligned with him. He knows what you need before you ask. He will give it to you. I love David in Psalm 63. Listen to how he describes it. He says, oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You see, the imagery that he's given is this desert, and he, there's no water around. And he said, that's how, God, I need you. That's how I long for you. In a place that's dry and weary, I thirst for you. It's a desperation. It's a dependence on God alone. And then I love in John 4, in the New Testament, where Jesus reveals something to this Samaritan woman. And you guys have heard the story, but John chapter 4, he has this encounter. And, and it's kind of out of cultural sync because, number one, back in that day, it was, it was just not good for a man to speak to a woman in a private, uh, private way anyway, um, even if she was a Jewish. But she was a Samaritan, which they were looked down upon. So she was kind of seen as you know, way down in society. And he comes up to her. 
And the disciples had gone to the nearby town. They were going to collect some food. And he's sitting there at this well with this woman. And he, re- he reveals something about her heart, her spiritual thirst. Because, you know, he reveals to her, you know, and, 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 and through the conversation, he shows that, you know, that she is, you know, she's living with a guy. She's been married five times. And he says, the man you're living with, you're not even married to. And, you know, and, and, and so she is just, whoa, this guy knows so much about me. She said, you must be a prophet. I'm like, good guess. But then they have this exchange, and then he says to the, this in verse 10, because the first thing he said was, can you draw me some water? Verse 10, he says this, if you knew the gift of God, and he's talking about salvation, he is the gift. If you knew the gift of God and who it, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would give you living water. Verse 14, he says this, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for him, for they will be filled. And he's talking to this Samaritan woman who is so broken, who has so many issues in her life. And he said, you know what? You are dying of thirst. And all those men that you keep running to and you're running to these relationships, you're never going to satisfy your thirst. You're looking for things in the wrong place. You're looking for happiness and contentment all in the wrong places. And if you knew the gift, the water that I would give you, you would never thirst again. Of course, she didn't quite get it because it was funny because she said, well, give it to me and I won't have to come back to this well. Sweet, magic water. And he said, no, I'm talking about Something that's in you that's crying out for something real and authentic. And what he did not give her, he did not give her religion. He did not give her another sermon. He gave her himself because he reveals to her that he is the Messiah. I'll give you a drink of water. You'll never be thirsty again. And so his words to us is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be filled you don't have to go around hungry and thirsty looking for hunger, looking for food and drink in the wrong places, looking for satisfaction in the wrong places. All you have to do is look to him, let him fill you up, and you'll never thirst again. John 6, he says this too. This is where a lot of people were offended by him because they understood what he was saying. He said, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part with me. And again, he wasn't being gross or sadistic. But he's saying, unless you're consumed with me, you'll have no part with me. Because he said, you know, you can't just have a part of me. You can't surrender. And I've said that before. You can't just surrender 90%. That's why he calls us to go to the cross. It's the idea of we're dead to ourselves, but we're alive in him. You can't just be mostly dead with Jesus. You have to be all saying, my life is in you. You are in my life. I want to drink of you. I want to eat of your flesh. I want to be consumed by your presence to have all of you in me. And when we are hungry and thirsty that way, his promise is that he will fill us. But it only comes through surrender. Unconditional surrender, complete surrender, total surrender, not coming to him with all the conditions of I'll surrender to you, but, you know, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to no, know it's taking our little contract that we make with all of our conditions and throwing it aside and say, I'm all yours. My whole life. And that's where we find him. That's where we will 
where we will find that place where we don't have to be hungry and thirsty. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. We need to be hungry for him every day, to live for him every day. So you want to be happy? You want to be eternally happy, spiritually prosperous, living in God's favor, content at rest, take on his meekness, and then hunger and thirst for him every day. And here's the thing. You're going to need him to do it. That's the way you set it up. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you so much. Lord, we realize we can't do it without you. We can't do nothing without you. Lord, we confess today, Lord, just as a group of people, we, we confess our own depravity. Lord, that without you, we're bankrupt. We're spiritually bankrupt. Lord, without you, we look for happiness in all the wrong places. We go here and there and everywhere else. Lord, that's why addictions are so rampant in our society as people are looking to be filled, content, at peace with something. So, Lord, we run to alcohol, we run to drugs, we run to relationships, we run to all kinds of things, music, we run to entertainment, we run to this thing and that thing. Lord, God, forgive us. Help us to find our rest in you. Help us to find, Lord God, the satisfaction for the hunger and thirst in our souls in you. Jesus, I pray that today would be a new day for for somebody in this room, oh God. That today, Jesus said, behold, today is the day of salvation. You don't have to wait to surrender. You know, and you think sometimes, well, I've surrendered 800 times. We'll do it 801. Give him your heart. Give him your life. He deeply loves you. Lord, we pray that we would, as as believers in you, God, that we would rule and reign and we would make an impact in our society, we would make an influence, we would be influencers, but Lord, we would do it in the right spirit, that we would walk in meekness, that we would have passion without pride, we would have boldness and courage, but with great humility. But Lord, we would serve instead of expect to be served. Lord, forgive us of when we've named it and claimed it, Lord God, instead of just living and rest in who you've created us to be. Help us to be meek, help us to be hungry and thirsty. And as we close, um, if you have to go, that's great, and uh, God bless you. But I just want to open up the front here. If you want to just spend some time with the Lord, we're going to put some worship music on just quietly. And I encourage you to get alone with God. Our leadership team will be up here. We can pray for you, come into agreement with what God's doing in your heart. And if you would like prayer for anything, we would just count it a privilege and an honor to pray with you. But don't miss the moment. You know, I know that we have to get away and get to things, you know, and I think, you know, yeah, there's some things that are important. But uh, spend a few moments with the Lord. You can stay in your seats there. You can come up to the front, whatever you're comfortable doing. But just get alone with God. Spend some time with Him. Surrender in a new way to Him today. And allow His peace and His presence to just overshadow you. Jesus, we love you today. Lord, I pray that our response would be toward you. Lord, we wouldn't miss this moment. Lord, I know that we're busy. God, help busyness not to get in the way. Lord, for those who have to go, and I understand, Lord, this is not a, not a guilt thing. Lord, God, I know that we have things that we have to get to. And, but, Lord, I pray that we would prioritize you like never before. 
And so, Lord, bless your wonderful people today. Lord, we invite you to come in. We invite you to touch our lives. We surrender to you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you today.